I think the biggest problem and contributor to intergenerational conflicts is the fact that, you know, we, we shy away from them as opposed to addressing them and organizations prefer not to talk about it. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, hey, welcome to episode 93. Today's episode is all about reframing generational stereotypes in manufacturing. Our guest this week is Raquel Ficardi, who is a generational diversity expert, international speaker, author, and founder of XYZ at Work. Now, we've talked about attracting the next generation of the workforce on this show quite a bit, but today is probably our most holistic conversation to date when it comes to all of the generations in the workforce and the wonderful things that each generation brings to the table. So, here are three things you can expect from this episode. First, we'll dive into Raquel's story, where we'll hear about her journey going from journalist to TV anchor to a future-of-work strategist. Second, we'll talk about generational diversity and why it's so critical at this moment in manufacturing and beyond. Finally, we'll discuss the pandemic's impact on intergenerational collaboration and what's unique about the manufacturing industry when it comes to generational diversity. Plus, a shout out to all the Gen Xers out there and their contribution to the Generations conversation. As always, you can access every resource we mention in these episodes at the show notes page. This one is manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 93. And actually, I need to give a special shout out to Rekele and our sponsor, A3, because Rekele is going to be a keynote speaker at the upcoming Automate show, which we've been talking about on this show quite a bit. It is the biggest automation event in North America for 2022 hosted by A3, the Association for Advancing Automation. If you want to attend, it's June 6th through 9th in Detroit, and you can register for free by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com automate2022. You can find myself as well as our guests this week at that event. And given that, I'm not going to give too much away yet. We got to get into a full interview with Rekele Ficardi. All right, Rekele. So we always start off Manufacturing Happy Hour with the question, if we were having this conversation over a beverage in person anywhere in the world, where would that be? Describe the place. Well, considering how much I've missed traveling uh, during the last two and a half year of COVID, especially being in Singapore, where the restrictions were quite severe, so we weren't really allowed to leave the country, I would probably say it would be somewhere in Europe, maybe on the Italian Amalfi Coast, in a beautiful cafe overlooking the Mediterranean Sea, uh, and having a nice glass of wine. That is perfect. It's been a long time since I've been to uh, to Italy as well, and we'll be heading to Italy at some point in this interview. <laughs> I don't want to give too much away yet, but uh, let's say we're hanging out there, we're having wine on the Med- Mediterranean coast, and someone asks you, you know, hey, Rekela, how do you describe what a future of work strategist does? How do you answer that as if you're having a glass of wine with someone? Well, if I'm having a glass of wine with somebody, I would basically say that my my work and my commitment 
is towards a making the workplace a better place and with a specific focus on promoting intergenerational collaboration and supporting organizations and governments and making sure that the future of our businesses and the future of our society is a future that is decided by all generations working hand in hand and collaborating together. And we are going to get into more of the details and specifics around that as we get into the interview. But we're, you know, here on the front end, we want to get to know you a little bit. The reality is your your career, both geographically and in terms of what you've done, has taken you a lot of places. So I, I want to go back to the beginning. My first question is, I mean, you studied journalism at the University of Texas. What was your original plan, if, if there was one per se? Well, I think this is a really good question, and it's kind of at the at the bottom or at the foundation of the work that I do today. I mean, I'm a Gen Xer, and I think as a Gen as a Gen Xer, particularly a Gen Xer who grew up in Italy, you know, I didn't have much of an idea of what I would do when I graduated. Um, you know, you, we didn't get a lot of support. We didn't get a lot of support from the schools. We didn't get a lot of support from our parents. The reality is that in a country where youth unemployment was really, really high, getting a job, any job, was considered a privilege, especially as a rookie, as someone with no experience. So ideally, you would have very few opportunities. You know, you would either go into political science or in law or in business, but without much of an understanding of, of where you would go. Um, so the thing that people my age and people people from my generation at the time would fall back on is what are we good at? You know, what is it that we think we may enjoy? And I was obviously uh, uh, very interested in writing. I always had a very strong curiosity, interest for the world. And I thought, okay, journalism seems to kind of align that, you know, it seems like a, a good enough choice. I also had this ideal, like every young generation has, uh, when they enter adulthood, that I would change the world. And at the time, I believe that it would be through winning a Pulitzer Prize of some sort as a war correspondent someplace. Of course, things went really differently, but uh, not that I'm sorry about it. So uh, I, I heard you say you're from Italy, and I saw you started your career in Italy. I might have missed the fact that you were originally from there. Yes. So I was born and raised in Italy at the age of um, 17. I went on an exchange student program to the United States in North Dakota. And after that, I decided to stay in the United States to pursue my college degree. So I moved to Austin, Texas, and I graduated from UT Austin in 2001 before moving back to Italy. Can you tell me a, a bit about that experience, right? Like early on, what it's like not, not only immersing yourself in another culture like that, but going through a different culture's educational system. I, I guess for me, going to the United States was always in the cards. Uh, my father was a big fan of the United States, and uh, he had always decided he put me in an American school when I was a young age, when I was five. And, you know, it was always in the cards for me to go and do this year abroad. Um, I would say it was a little bit of a culture shock for me. Um, I mean, I grew up in Milan. And and at the age of 17 in Milan is possibly the peak of your kind of, you know, social life in terms of friends, in terms of, you know, you know, belonging uh, to a group. And, you know, of course, you have your first loves and so on. And so, of course, moving to North Dakota was was a bit of a shock. Uh, I was only there for three months before I moved to to Austin, Texas. But it was wonderful, to be honest. I mean, it was a fantastic experience. I think it put a lot to the test. And um, one thing that I really appreciate about the U.S. educational system compared to the U.S. educational system was um, it was much more hands-on. Of course, that's even more so true today. But it was an, an educational system that uh, appreciated youth. 
that encouraged you to be ambitious, encouraged you to be a leader, encouraged you to take initiative, to speak up. And this is definitely something that wasn't part of the Italian educational system back in those days, where as a young talent, you were told that you had basically nothing worth saying, nothing worth listening to, and nothing worth contributing to. And so that's the one thing that I appreciated the most about the United States, and that actually, I guess, set the premise for me to start working in the field that I work in today. I appreciate you going into that because education is a big topic on this show, right? A lot of times we talk about it in the context of skilled trades or engineering degrees, for example, but also, you know, looking at our education system through the lens of someone that made their jump over to the U.S. while they were young is also helpful for us to understand. And it's not the only jump I've I've seen you make in, in your career, at least from my research. So you were you were a TV anchor for a while, and then you pivoted to talent and employer branding. I might have skipped a step just brushing over being a TV anchor, but what was it like being a TV anchor and then making a shift like that to talent and employer brand? I mean, that was that was an incredible experience for me, uh, to be honest, becoming a TV anchor as somebody who graduated in journalism and who frankly graduated without much of an idea of what I would do and what my next steps would be. And as a matter of fact, my professor jokingly called me the one who hadn't figured it out because everybody seemed to know exactly where they would end up following their degree when I didn't even know if I would stay in the U.S. or not. So the journey towards becoming an anchor wasn't an easy one. I first went back to the United States, had to, you know, get into, uh, you know, start working with a temporary agency to find a job in a country that I knew very little about when it came to finding work. And I started working in an advertising company. I then moved on to working for a communication consulting firm as a PR, uh, you know, PR uh, junior executive. And that's where, you know, my boss had previous connections with, with the media world. And he knew that I had graduated in journalism and he saw my ambition. He appreciated it, which was something that was quite rare in a leader in Italy back in those days. And so I ended up in um, interning uh, in a kind of paid internship at CNBC in Italy, uh, where my job was to, you know, support the main anchor who was based in London and kind of support her in the director room and, you know, make sure that everything was aligned. And it was interesting for me because one day I showed up at the uh, uh, newsroom really early in the morning at four in the morning to read the newspapers and all that. And uh, my editor said, well, good thing you're here early today because uh, you're going to take on the morning show, Coffee Affairs, and you're going live. And needless to say also, which is quite important, that everything was unscripted at the time. So there was literally no script. And you would see that market information, you know, on the on the news wires together with the audience. And I was just terrified because I said, you know, A, I'm not particularly strong on finance. You know, that was not my degree. I have never been behind a camera. Nobody's ever trained me to be behind one. How can I do this? And they said, well, Rachel, you know, this is sink or swim. Give it a shot. I think you can manage. And so I found myself with a co-host uh, running a two-hour morning program. Uh, luckily at 6 a.m. So hopefully not a lot of people were awake as I was kind of making my bones, but it worked out pretty well. And uh, I went on to having my own TV shows, to being live for you know most of the day, uh, to uh, setting up some programs. And uh, it was just an incredible experience. It's it's funny because I always like I like we did before the interview. I always prep my guests on, hey, don't worry, it's not airing live or anything. But clearly, <laughs> I didn't need to do that with you. You've been thrown into much more challenging situations before. Oh yeah, definitely. You have the time, you know, when the technology doesn't work, when the technical team doesn't work, when there's issue with the technology, and you need to be able to hold your own. So yeah, I think that's one great thing about being an anchor. It teaches you how long a minute can be.
Oh, absolutely. I uh, completely agree with that. My only technical difficulties, you know, it's morning where I am, it's night where you are right now. My only technical difficulties were getting the coffee going to uh, <laughs> jump in here and feel awake on time. But no, this is, I, I appreciate everything you're sharing. So I think the last question before we get to talking more about generational diversity is, you know, where did you realize that was becoming a focus of yours or you wanted it to become a focus of yours in your talent and employer branding journey? How did you dial into that area specifically? Well, I mean, I think that if if each one of us is is honest and is able to kind of look back on their life and their career with a retrospective eye, we will find that the seed uh, for those things that really matter, the seed that bloomed into, you know, our passion, our focus, our direction was always planted a lot sooner and a lot earlier than we actually think. And that was the case for me. I mean, for me, the, the seed honestly was planted when I came back to Italy after my college degree in the United States. And I realized, and I had to face head on the, you know, really horrible and horrifying working uh, environment that a young talent, especially one with ambition, had to face uh, and had to endure um, in Italy, you know, just on the basis of the fact that you're a rookie, you know, you have no experience, you have nothing worth saying. So I remember that I, you know, coming especially from a US educational system where they taught me to speak up and to, you know, uh, take initiative, all these things I found were not really appreciated back then. And in fact, I found myself in the first six months of working for this advertising agency, pretty much making photocopies and, and serving coffee. And I remember that when, you know, after six months of being frustrated and, and and really wanting to learn I went to my boss and I said listen please let me be part of an internal meeting between a junior you know the, the accounts team and the creative team I will not say anything I'll make myself really small but I really want to hear what conversations take place I was actually called in by HR a few hours later and I was told that this was absolute insubordination that this type of ambition would never be rewarded and that I needed to stay in my place because fundamentally I had nothing worth saying and it wasn't up to me to decide when I was ready to join the big league. And uh, needless to say, I didn't buy that and I, I quit that job and I find something else and I moved on and I did experience that reality uh, a few more times. But that is really when I started to realize looking backwards how sad it was and how unfortunate it was that all this ambition and this desire to make a difference and to learn and all this you know vibrant energy that I had as a young talent how much it went to waste and you know what my life could look like today if I had instead been supported and guided and enabled and empowered the way that young generations are today so I think that's really what set the 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 seed uh, there, I remember that when I had this experience, I went back to my grandfather, who was a traditionalist, now early traditionalist, and I remember he got mad at me. I was expecting empathy, but he said, you know, what are you expecting? You just started. You're lucky they're even paying you. You know, you should have your head, you know, head low because, you know, back in those days, and especially for the Gen X and baby boomer generations and traditionalists and so on, work was sort of something that you had to suffer through. And as a young talent, it's only when you had been sufficiently indoctrinated by the older generations that you would be considered as somebody, you know, worth listening to or who could be allowed to speak up. And so I remember that stayed with me. It stayed with me for many years with this feeling of kind of like sadness and, and sense of, of pity. And then, you know, years later, um, actually, you know, about five, six years later, that's when it actually uh, bloomed. I appreciate you being so honest with this origin story, if you will, right? I didn't realize all of that was uh, the catalyst for this. Um, <laughs> yes. I have some more questions about this. I think we're going to weave it in towards the end first because we're we're in a 
we're in a moment right now, just a macro moment where generational diversity, it's pretty critical for companies to survive, right? Can you share some thoughts on why generational diversity is so critical at this moment? Yeah, absolutely, Chris. I mean, if I can just take it a, a, a quick, quick step backwards, um, just in terms of, you know, how how this became a key priority, because I think it became a top priority for me alongside the rest of the world. I think the pivotal moment where generational diversity really started becoming uh, a fundamental challenge for organization was around 2005, 2006. This was the rise of the millennials. I remember at the time I was working for an organization that was serving students in the United States about their preference when it came to their future careers. And we surveyed undergraduate and master students at the same time. But that year, 2006, was a pivotal year because what happened is all undergraduates fell under the millennial category and all Gen Xers fell under the, uh, uh, Gen, uh, all the uh, masters, sorry, and MBAs fell under the, the Gen X generation. And I remember when I was looking at the research coming out from the study, the data was so polarly opposite that I initially thought that there was some issue with data cleaning. So all of a sudden, this new generation wanted something different fundamentally you know as opposed to the money the brand and the prestige that the older generations wanted because we thought that fundamentally that's the best we could ask for when it came to work the new generations millennials woke up one day and said you know what enough is enough life is worth living as we live it diversity is worth being valued i want work to be part of who i am and not just a way to make a living and if organizations don't pivot to this we will not want to work for them and then of course you know google rose out of this myth you know, of disillusion that I think characterized the older generations and started giving the millennials everything that they wanted. So what happened is every other industry, every other organization started waking up to this kind of McKinsey war for talent that they needed to win and realized that, you know, we can no longer hire people on the basis of money, prestige, brand, and so on and so forth. We need to pivot. We need to transform. And so this is where the millennial revolution, the workplace revolution took place. And I think any of us here listening to this today can probably agree that what the workplace is like today is extremely different than what it was 15 years ago. I mean, today we can take you know, to some extent, diversity, flexibility, training, uh, care, empathy on the part of our employers, almost for granted. So this is really was the moment that A, transformed the workplace for the better, but also that created this intergenerational conflict. So what happened at the time, Chris, is this, organizations uh, struggled and rushed to transform. And this is fantastic. I mean, this is something Mm -hmm. that, of course, has contributed to the workplace for the better for everybody. But what they failed to do was they failed to explain to the young generations coming into the workforce who they would encounter, how the Gen Xers, the baby boomers, and the traditionalists that were there before them had it differently as they themselves were embarking on their careers. And also they failed to explain to the generations currently in the workplace why these millennials were coming up, why they were demanding change, and why organizations were pivoting to this generation and and bringing about this change. And so what happens to a certain extent, if I may use this term, is millennials were somewhat shoved down people's throat. So the older generation in the workplace started saying, why is it that we need to take these students? Why do we need to change our approach to leadership? Why do we need to become flexible? Why do we need to give them so much feedback? Why is it that we need to change when they are the ones who are coming into the workforce new and should learn from us? And so what happened is this created a divide between the younger generations and the older generations that 
led to this kind of never ending struggle between new age mindset and traditional thinking where, you know, the young generations fundamentally believe that the older generations are there to halt progress, to stop them from creating a new path with successful impact and so on and so forth. And of course, this is something that organizations are still struggling with today. Um, and in fact, um, when we look at organizations across the world, one of the top two reasons why people leave companies is because of intergenerational conflicts, uh, which one in two employees across generation say are frequent or very frequent and are experienced on a daily basis. So of course, you know, this, this is something that has been building up for 15 years. Now what's happening is a couple of things which are making this topic so important. Number one is we're entering a new era. So right now the millennials are now in positions of leadership. We're all kind of used to them by now. We've, we've managed to integrate them sufficiently and be comfortable around them. But what we have now is an entire new generation, Gen Z, coming into the workplace. And Gen Z are going to bring about an entire new revolution when it comes to the workforce, which is going to be linked not to um, uh, the workplace or the environment and the culture, which they now, of course, take for granted, but to purpose and impact. So this is a generation that is terrified that there's not going to be a world for their kids to grow up in and really wants organization to be committed to sustainable development goals, to allow them to make a difference, and so on and so forth. So the reality for companies is that in any organization that wants to you know, win the war for talent or progress forward into the future is a we will need to be able to reinvent them ourselves in order to attract this new generation and the reality is we can have the most positive message out there that as a gen z come work for us and you can change the world but if they encounter resistance on the part of the existing generations in the workplace gen x or baby boomers mm -hmm. um uh, and, and and they're not enabled and empowered they will not be able to stay um the other thing as well is that with five i mean right now we don't just have gen z's coming into the workforce, but we also have baby boomers that are staying well past the age of retirement and even some traditionalists, which means people in their 70s that are still going strong. So that means that in many organizations, we actually have up to five generations working together. So what this is creating is what I call the XYZ divide syndrome, where generational diversity is seen as a negative element that actually makes the workplace less productive. And this is obviously a big pity. And so organizations and business leaders are struggling with being able to create an environment where every generation can feel equally valuable, equally heard, equally able to contribute, and so on and so forth. I think the third thing is obviously the, the skills mismatch. You know, you have a lot of organizations out there that are struggling. I mean, the war for talent isn't getting any easier. And so being able to leverage on the strengths of, you know, your talent, both unique and collectively, is going to become critical. Uh, and also being able to hire for skills and then losing them because you can't retain them because your environment is not, you know, multi-generationally harmonious is a pity. And the final thing I think is, um, is COVID. I mean, COVID-19 mm -hmm. has proved to us and leading up to COVID-19, climate change and all these other kind of societal issues that we've been facing, digitalization as well, that the challenges that we will be increasingly facing, uh, both as, as a business, but also as a society, simply cannot be solved through the traditional and hierarchical way of doing business, but only by really combining, you know, the ambition, the social mindedness, um, you know, the tech savviness of the younger generation alongside the great wealth of experience, knowledge and wisdom of the older ones. So this is what is making business leaders and CEOs realize that the future will depend on intergenerational collaboration in and outside of the workplace. So one one thing I want to go into is I was going to ask you about um, a misconception, 
right, around yeah. this. But you shared one that I'd like to dig into a bit more. You said people see multi-generational collaboration as a negative in some yeah. way, right? Like, how is yeah. how is that being, uh, how are people debunking that, right? Because it seems clear, but why is that, um, maybe my question is, why is that a misconception, right? It seems like it's obvious that you need multi-generation perspectives. Yeah, well, I mean, if you ask me, it's because it's not talked about enough. Um, I think mm. every time there's a topic that is controversial, that could be taboo, that could end up being misinterpreted, um, you know, I think the natural thing for most business leaders, for most organizations, for most people really to do is to bury the head in the sand and not address it. And so what happens fundamentally is that not addressing, I mean, the reality is you can sit and there's a lot of articles, Chris, don't get me wrong. I mean, I read recently one on the, you know, New Yorker talking about generations don't exist. Generational diversity is not real. Talking about it is, you know, equivalent to discriminating. You know, we're all people, we're all individual. We shouldn't be bucketed. But in reality, I mean, the context that, that that the forces that shaped us, the context in which we were brought up from socioeconomic, political, even pop culture, technology, all of these things shape us. So the reality that a baby boomer encountered as they entered adulthood, as they entered the workforce, even the way they were parented, I mean, parenting styles deeply influence workplace leadership. These things obviously influence us and makes us make us different. And so acknowledging these this diversity, acknowledging the context, the forces that shaped us is fundamental in order to be able to understand certain behaviors and certain mindsets that are different from my own from our own and what happens is that when you don't dive into this when you don't go out and make sure that people understand the forces that shaped one another then what people do is they fall back in, on what they know and so they fall back on confirmation bias they fall back on negative stereotypes so let me give you just a quick like personal experience i mean when i was growing up the one lesson my dad taught me as i was entering the workplace was rachel sit down you know, this is the one thing I'm going to tell you, the one that is going to be, you know, is going to make you go forward in life. Never trust anybody at work. Remember, you know, everyone's a competitor. Everybody's after that same job. You know, you think you're friends, but you're all being pitted against one another. Even if your boss calls you out in a social context, it's always an interview. Remember, never let your guard down. Keep your personal, personal business, business, you know, forget being authentic, you know, shield yourself because whatever weakness you show of yours is going to end up biting you. And then also no supposed or alleged friendship is going to save you from being kicked to the curb if from one day to the next, you're no longer useful. So obviously, I mean, Chris, you can't imagine what the first 20 yeah. years in the workforce looked like for me. I mean, I had a really hard time connecting with people. And I guess, you know, at the beginning part or stages of my career, that was okay, because I think most people had a similar approach. But then what happened is I started to manage millennials. And millennials expected authentic leadership. They expected you to go out and have happy hour with them and talk about your private life. And obviously, I would always try to stay away from those experiences. And I would always try to wiggle my way out of attending them. And what the what the confirmation bias then was, was look at Rachel, she's such a Gen Xer. She thinks she's better than us. She's individualistic. She's not a team player. You know, she doesn't know how to be authentic. She thinks she's better than us. And of course, this was the story. And this is what most people think about, for example, when they think about the next generation. Little did they know that I was genuinely terrified because I had a really hard time reconciling 
you know, what I had been taught for most of my career and the type of leader that I had been taught to be with this new type of leadership. And I had no idea how to befriend someone one night and then give them constructive feedback or tell them that, you know, their work wasn't properly done the next day. And so, of course, I would steer away from this. So, I mean, this is just a, a kind of, you know, a personal example to showcase that when people know this about me and then they see that I'm not comfortable hanging out, then they'll know that, oh, that's because the reality was so different for her that she's having a struggle adjusting. If they don't know that about me, it's easy to fall back to the negative stereotypes that I'm individualistic and so on and so forth. And so there's a lot of this going on in the workplace. And this is where the boomers become okay boomers and are dismissed. And the idea is that their opinions are obsolete and out of date. And that's where the Gen Zers and the new generations are labeled strawberries or snowflakes. The reality is that you know, we simply don't know anything about one another. And in fact, Chris, and this will blow your mind, when I ask employees across generations in all types of organizations how much they understand about the forces that shape their multi-generational colleagues, 97% say that they know very little or nothing at all. So what happens is that we begrudge one another simply because we don't understand how much the mindsets and the ways of thinking we disapprove of are actually rooted in the way that we grew up. And so, so, you know, going back to your question, I think the biggest problem and contributor to intergenerational conflicts is the fact that, you know, we, we shy away from them as opposed to addressing them and organizations prefer not to talk about it and dismiss it as opposed to actually helping employees generally, genuinely understand one another. We'll be right back right after a word from our sponsor. Are you looking for the biggest events in the automation industry? If you are, you're going to want to hear about today's sponsor, A3, the Association for Advancing Automation. A3 is the leading global automation trade association of the robotics, machine vision, motion control, and AI industries. They also throw some of the best events in the automation and manufacturing space. And for me, they're the source of some of the best connections I've made in the manufacturing industry. You might not realize this, but throughout the years, we've featured over 10 different A3 partners on this podcast. Now, whether we're talking about their annual business forum or their marquee event, the Automate Show, A3's events are the spot for building partnerships, exploring new technologies, and getting a pulse on the industry. If you're listening to this episode before June 2022, make sure to check out Automate 2022 taking place in Detroit, Michigan, June 6th through 9th. I, for one, will definitely be there. Head to automateshow.com for more information and to register for free today. And you can always learn what A3 has going on by visiting automate.org. And now, back to today's episode. There are a lot of questions I have where we could go <laughs> go deeper into this. I think I'm gonna we're, we're gonna shift it to a positive for a little yes. while, right? And it, it actually starts off with a let's say a situation that kind of negatively impacted the world. Yeah, it negative. It, it was the pandemic, right? You mentioned something interesting when we were talking before interview that the pandemic played a role in let's say leveling the playing field and made people more collaborative across generations. Can you share a little bit about how that played out? Absolutely. I mean, I, I know that there's a lot of people in the world that have been, you know, negatively impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic has brought 
trauma and sadness and devastation, you know, in, in ways that, you know, we cannot begin to, to, to describe. But if we want to look at the silver lining or if we want to try to look at the positive outcomes, I mean, from a multi-generational workforce perspective, it's possibly one of the best things that could have happened right now. And the reason for that is that, the, as I just mentioned, Chris, the reason why generations don't get along is because basically every experience that forms them is lived in silos because we simply don't exist at the same time in the same space. So everything that influences me as I enter adulthood, I live alone together with my generationally similar colleagues and so on. What COVID did very similarly to, I don't know, an eclipse or a Halley's comet, it, it created an unprecedented and unexpected scenario, one where every generation in every workplace virtually around the world experienced the same large-scale event at the same time. And what this did is it brought generations together in ways that I could have never hoped for. I have spent 18 years talking to organizations about generations and looking at data and how did different generations experience the workplace. And I was just releasing and sharing data from the post-pandemic workplace study, which I will also share during the Automate conference. And I honestly had a hard time uh, highlighting or calling out generational differences because for the first time generations experienced the same thing at the same time. So if we think about it, for example, from a technology standpoint or a flexibility standpoint or a purpose standpoint, much of the conflicts between generations was linked around the use of technology, how we envision the workplace and our mm -hmm. desire to be flexible. And also, of course, you know, the young generations being linked to purpose. And what the pandemic did is it forced technology on everybody. So even the older generations who were resistant to it were forced to adopt it. And now they love it. And in fact, the baby boomers are the ones who say, you know what the best thing that came out of this pandemic is? One of the absolute best things is technology. It was forced upon me. And now not only I understand the new generations better and I can communicate with them, but I can actually work remotely and finally enjoy my grandkids, my house, a home cooked meal or some exercise, which I never had the luxury of doing before. And on top of that, it's also going to make me productive member of the workforce for a lot longer. And um, and so basically and then, of course, there is this renewed sense of purpose that COVID has brought upon you know, every generation. And I will talk a little bit more about this or a lot more about this during the conference. But uh, but this has brought generations closer together. So if we look at the multi-generational workforce right now, generations appreciate each other more than ever. They are curious about one another more than ever. They uh, understand each other more than ever. They want the same things. Every generation now wants hybrid. They all agree that mm -hmm. hybrid is the way to go. But interestingly enough, when you look at who wants hybrid the most, is the baby boomers. When you look at who among all the generation actually favors the office the most, is the Gen Zers, the new generations, because you know obviously they haven't had that in-person experience and now they're missing it. So it's almost like generations started at very polar places and opposite air places, and then they met in the middle, converged, and now they kind of really are living uh, the workplace kind of from almost from each other's shoes. Um, so this is an incredible opportunity for organizations. This is the first time that 69% of employees across generations agree that older and younger generations are facing similar challenges and opportunities in the post-pandemic workplace. Uh, while before, you know, the old used to think it was the young that had it easier, the young used to think it was the older generations that had it easier, now generations are aligned. So it's up to organizations really to capitalize on this newfound energy to make sure that generations understand each other, stay connected, and then of course also have the platforms 
uh, and processes and initiatives and so on in place to be able to stay connected in a digital world. I think uh, silver lining was a great way to describe these outcomes. I think you talked about how there was empathy across the different generations at this point. You gave, gave some very specific examples of different groups, different generations starting to realize, hey, I hear what you were saying all along now. Like, this makes yeah. sense. I get why you'd want to go to the office or I get why you want to do remote work. Absolutely. Awesome lessons. Awesome lessons across the board. You know, you and I are going to cross paths again very <laughs> soon at Automate 2022 in Detroit. And without giving too much away, I do want to ask about the manufacturing industry. This is a manufacturing show. You know, what's something unique about that industry when it comes to addressing generational diversity? Well, I mean, I think uh, when it comes to addressing generational diversity, particularly in a post-pandemic workplace, because again, addressing generational diversity now is very different than addressing generational diversity a year ago. I mean, like I said, you know, now is the perfect opportunity. Generations are aligned and so on and so forth. But right now, the biggest challenge organizations are facing is figuring out what the multi-generational uh, post-pandemic workplace is going to look like. And of course, it's much easier for certain industries as opposed to other. In the manufacturing sector, for example, you have a lot of employees that had no choice but work on site. I mean, you know, in the in, in, in many other industries, employees could work remotely. You know, there's no question about the fact that, you know, we can continue doing our business working, you know, miles or thousands of miles apart, working from our own, own homes, working from, from cafes, coffee shops, whatever. But obviously for factory workers that need to be in the plants, things are very different, but they still want that new post-pandemic workplace just as much as anybody else. I mean, they, they want to be supported. They want the flexibility. They want the mental health. They want the work-life balance. And so, of course, it's a bigger challenge for organization in the manufacturing industry to figure out how do we deliver upon this to you know these type of workers um when it's not so easy so a few things obviously you know that we see that is that is very obvious to everyone i think is a lot less employees in manufacturing currently work in hybrid compared to any other industry. Also, manufacturing workers are less satisfied with the way that their employers handled the shift to remote and hybrid work during the pandemic compared to other industries because many just couldn't take advantage of that flexibility and they're you know, overworked and exhausted. The mental health of manufacturing personnel worsened markedly during the pandemic compared to other industry exactly because of that. Um, and so, of course, there's a lot of, of thought that organizations in the manufacturing industry need to give towards how do we make sure that we don't alienate our workforce and create one reality for a certain type of employees and, and you know, continue uh, with business as usual for others, but how do we help our entire workforce to move into a future workplace? And that means that you know, there needs to be uh, a lot of uh, kind of thinking and thought around how do we deliver flexibility in this case? How do we support our employees? How do we help them transform? And, uh, and that's not as easy, but it is possible possible. And there are a lot of wonderful case studies of organizations that are doing great things to make sure that manufacturing employees feel that they are going to be able to take advantage and be a part of a, uh, a post-pandemic workplace just as much as, you know, any other industry. And I know we're going to take a deeper dive into that topic here in uh, a few weeks in Detroit. So we won't go too far yet. <laughs> a lot of people listening to this show are, I think, are going to be showing up at Automate. So uh, That's we'll, 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 we'll be continuing that conversation there. As we wrap things up, you know, a, a couple per personal questions that came up as we were going through this, you know, I feel like 
millennials and Gen Z and boomers get all the spotlight in this, but you're a Gen Xer. Tell, you know, I think a lot of people are familiar with the, the, let's say the strengths and weaknesses of the millennial and the boomer generations. What are, what, what are Gen Xers bringing to the table? We got to put some spotlight. On, Absolutely. On you. <laughs> I mean, honestly, Gen Xers are a fantastic generation. The way, the reason why they get a lot less spotlight is because they are the smallest generation. And also we are a generation that grew up, you know, quite disillusioned. I mean, the baby boomers and millennials are actually the two generations that have the most in common in the sense that they were both the original, you know, the, the baby boomers that were the original me generation labeled narcissists, the first that fought for social social revolution and so on and so forth. They, they were team workers. They believed in the institutions. They wanted to change them um, or the possibility of new institutions. Well, Gen X grew up relatively skeptical. I mean, we were also a generation, the first generation that grew up in an era of divorce. You know, we were a generation that grew up mostly self-sufficient. Um, and we learned how to be, you know, autonomous, how to be independent, how to care for ourselves. We're not necessarily loyal to organizations, but we're a lot more loyal to one another. And so as a result of this, we kind of lost the spotlight. We became, you know, the ones that could adapt the best. In fact, we are seen as the ultimate cuspers, the perfect bridge between old, uh, you know, traditional thinking and new age mindset. Because if we think about it, you know, Gen Xers were the very first generation of tech entrepreneurs. I mean, if we look at Apple, if we look at PayPal and so on, I mean, these are companies that were started by Gen Xers. So we understand technology, we understand how to use it, but we're also very familiar with how the world worked before technology became you know commonly used and adopted and in fact uh, it's interesting because when I ask different generation around um, you know different generations in the workplace what is the generation that they have the least challenge working with after their own Gen Xers are always a generation that every generation has the least problems working with because we really knew how to adapt with baby boomers we could yeah. serve deference you know, we could do it. We knew how what they needed and we could offer that, but we also knew how to relate to the younger generation. So actually there's a lot of articles that talk about, you know, Gen, Gen Xers as the most underestimated strong potential for leadership. Unfortunately, the way we see it is that we're still too old for, uh, you know, we're still too young for executive management and we're too young, too old for the younger generations. And so we're kind of stuck in the middle, but we are seen as the ultimate problem solvers, the one that can pretty much, you know, solve the problem. We're also a generation that doesn't like the limelight, doesn't like the spotlight. We don't usually impart wisdom, but it's a generation that puts, you know, their talents to the disposal of the organization and is willing to, you know, solve the problem in whichever way. Uh, but we're also very autonomous and we're also very independent and we fundamentally don't require much. And this is the region why we kind of got lost uh, in the middle or amidst a multi-generational workforce. But uh, but obviously there's a lot of potential. You know, we have a lot of strengths that need to be valued and can contribute to 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 any organization. And uh, of course, we, we do deserve to have a voice and uh and, and we should. And, and now we are actually, thanks to many organizations that are starting to put a lot greater emphasis on appreciating and recognizing the value of each age group. I, I see you as like the great mediators that, like you <laughs> said, can kind of bridge the generations. And, you know, it's it's about time we gave Gen X some spotlight. I feel like we we leave you out of the conversation too often. So thank you for sharing your personal story there. Please. I feel like a couple's therapist most times, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Good way to describe it. Good but way you know, to describe it. 
It's true, but you know, the, the good thing is this, and, and this is, you know, I, I know we, we address some of the kind of negative elements or, you know, the difficulties, I wouldn't, you know, difficulties of, of working, you know, in a multi-generational workforce, but I just want to make sure that my, my view on this is clear. There is nothing that can make society or an organization stronger than intergenerational collaboration. I really do believe that intergenerational collaboration is the key to saving the world. I also believe that if we look at the last 200 years, the world was governed governed, you know, and ran fundamentally by the older generations. Prior to that, our kings and queens were, you know, nothing short of teenagers. But, you know, the world going forward needs to be in the hands of every generation's working collaboratively and leveraging this collaborative advantage to solve the many interconnected, you know, problems that we're going to be facing both in society and business. So generational diversity is diversity. Let's not, you know, let's not kid ourselves about that. But it does make us stronger. Um, and I think this is really the key message that I wanted to make sure came through, <laughs> Chris, uh, because I do yeah. believe it's up to us now to, you know, wherever we go, foster that culture of intergenerational dialogue, uh, collaboration and appreciation. And my last question is, you know, you shared your story and the challenges you went in or you ran into earlier in your career, you know, at a macro level, do you see things trending in the right direction? I absolutely think things are trending in the right direction. I frankly, and this is what led me to write my recent book, Reframing Generational Stereotypes. It was the new generations, Gen Z. I am mesmerized when I watch and I listen to this incredible new group of youth that is literally, you know, revolutionizing the world. I mean, from school strike for climate action to, you know, Black Lives Matters to, you know, all these kind of revolutions. I mean, one by one, we are seeing, you know, these young generations step up as talent, as future leaders, as future consumers wanting to, 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 to fix the errors of the past and to align uh, the world, you know, in a, in a, in a much better direction. And, uh, and I believe that if we, you know, and I, you know, again, you know, Chris, as a genetic, I have to say, like, I came to terms with the fact that I'm not going to be the one to save the world. But what I do think that I, I have to do is hands in hands with my millennials and baby boomer colleagues is take this new generation by the hand and, and help them and empower them and enable them to drive this change that we're absolutely all going to benefit from. So when I look at this new generation of future leaders who are social minded, who are, you know, you know, aware, who uh, value and, and recognize the power of dialogue, who want to change the world together collectively, as opposed to trying to change the world alone, who are redefining the concept of leadership who are redefining the concept of consumerism. I mean, I think that we can only be going in the right direction. And on top of that, listening to amazing baby boomers now telling me, listen, I want to help. I was once that ambitious, social-minded, a young youth who wanted to change the world. And then the only way I could change the world was doing what baby boomers did back then, climb the corporate ladder and hope that once I got to the top, I'd be able to change things. But then I lost myself along the way, being the first one in and the last one out. And now that, you know, this pandemic has hit us in the way it has, you know, I am, I'm in touch with my purpose again. You know, I, I, I want to realign my career and my life to a bigger purpose. And I want nothing more than to be able to support these new generations and align, you know, 
our purpose towards a shared purpose and really work on this together. So, so absolutely, we are moving in the right direction. And in fact, you know, 25% of employees across generations say that rediscovering their sense of purpose and realigning their career uh, to a bigger goal has now become the, the key outcome or takeaway from the COVID pandemic. So again, you know, it's the perfect storm. We have generations that are there, that appreciate each other, that want the same things. And, uh, and I'm really confident that if we jump on this and we don't allow things to cool down, but we hit the iron while it's hot, uh, generations will work together and we will create a new reality, um, which is a reality where, 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 where generations are just, you know, effective together and, and make decisions and run the world together. Otherwise, what's going to happen is things are going to cool down. You know, everyone is going to go back into their own silos. And I believe we're going to miss out on, on the opportunity of a lifetime or maybe two or three uh, to really change the world in a way that's really going to make a difference. Not only did we end it on a positive note, we ended it on an inspiring note. Michaela, I really appreciate you taking the time to jump on the show today. And for everyone listening, you know, your book, uh, Reframing Generational Stereotypes, there will be links to all of those in the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com. Last question, what's the best way to connect with you? Um, well, I'm very visible on LinkedIn. So please do connect with me. Um, you know, br I'm happy to brainstorm. I'm happy to talk. I'm I'm happy to listen about your challenges or you know the the difficulties or the opportunities that you're facing in a multi generational workforce or home <laughs> um, at any time. So please look for me, Raquele Focardi, on LinkedIn. Um, also, you can go on my website, www.xyzatwork.com. So xyzatwork.com, and you'll be able to see a lot of research and you know listen to podcasts and um, um, you know uh, stay in touch with me and, and the content that uh, that uh, that is coming out. Thank you so much for imparting your wisdom on us today, and I look forward to seeing you in Detroit in June 2022. Hey, thanks so much for listening, and as always, a big thanks to our guest for jumping on today's show. If you want to hear the end of Raquel's story as we talk more about generations in manufacturing, well, you got to attend Automate 2022 in Detroit. You can register for free today by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash automate2022. And in the meantime, if you want to learn more about Raquel, if you want to check out her book, Reframing Generational Stereotypes, you can find all of that at more over at the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 93. One more shout out to our sponsor this week, A3, Association for Advancing Automation. You already know the drill. Register for Automate. We want to hang out with you in Detroit. It's going to be a great time. It's going to be an excellent time to propel your career, connect with exhibitors, learn a ton about the state of automation, AI, robotics, whatever it is. You want to attend this event. ManufacturingHappyHour.com slash Automate2022 to register today. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating or rating and review over at Apple Podcasts or at Spotify. Wherever you listen to this show, please consider doing that. It can be as quick as hitting that five-star button. And with that, that is it for this week. Automate is coming up quickly. Hope to see you there. In the meantime, stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you back here next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.